0: This past week, I don't know if you remember, it was St. Patrick's Day. Um, I had corned beef. Did you guys have corned beef? For some reason, on St. Patrick's Day, um, I make—I always have a Reuben, like which has nothing to do with like Irish heritage. But I take the corned beef and I put it on rye bread with sauerkraut, Thousand Island dressing, Russian dressing, however you do it. Melt the Swiss cheese on it, and that's how I celebrate St. Patrick's Day. But whatever, be that as it may. Anyway, I wanted to read a portion of a prayer known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. And this is a pretty well-known prayer, but it it was all over social media all week, and it's just something that's just so beautiful, and I just felt the need to read it. It goes like this. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I think it's safe to say that St. Patrick's longing for the presence of God in his life, at least according to this prayer, is without question. And And honestly, I I believe this has been the longing for God's people throughout the ages, that he would reside with us, that he would be with us. It's the presence of God that births boldness and confidence, even in the midst of trials and suffering. We see throughout the scriptures, and we see it right here in the book of Acts, as it said in Acts 4.31, And when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This morning we're going to see how that boldness increases, but it increases because the apostles are confident, not only in, in, not only of God's presence with them through the work of the Holy Spirit, which they experience now multiple times and in tangible ways, but that the man they saw beaten crucified and buried, had stood before them in the flesh alive. See, Redeemer Fellowship, the resurrection of Jesus is what serves as the foundation of the apostles' faith. This is what enables them to go boldly, toe-to-toe with the powers that be, and it is the very place where we too find confidence to walk in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. That's what we're looking at this morning, that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for our hope and confidence, both personally and missionally, especially in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of suffering. So with that, let's look at our passage this morning. We're going to be looking, first of all, at chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And in your outline, it says all the words of this life. Now this passage ironically begins with the Greek word anistemi, which means to rise. But notice that those doing the rising in this passage are being raised up with what Luke describes as jealousy, or as one commentator puts it, religiously motivated rage. Religiously motivated rage. Let's take a look. But the high priest rose up the same term used to describe the resurrection of Jesus. The the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy or, or religiously motivated rage, they arrested the apostles and put them in prison, or they put them publicly into the prison. And so the question I was wrestling with as I was reading through this passage is, what in the world are they so mad about? What in the world are they so angry about that they, that they are filled with rage and that they would rise up and, and toss this entire group of people into the prison publicly so that everybody could see? What are they mad about? So, so let's think through where we've been so far. right From last week, The many signs and wonders that were being regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, that really irked them for some reason. They were greatly annoyed at that. The fact that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Prior to that, they were angry that Peter and John healed a lame beggar outside of the temple gate, which is interesting because I remember Peter's response. It's like, you're you're mad about that? You're mad that I did a good thing? like okay that, that's on you then if that's what you're going to be upset about it's kind of like if i help a woman across the street and someone gets mad at me like why did you help that woman across the street well well, well that's on you if you if you don't like me doing something nice then then you got to deal with that but mostly they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead that's what really got under their skin. That's what really kind of got in there and, and frustrated them, partly because what was happening is that there seemed to be right before their eyes a changing of the guard happening, that no longer were they going to be the ones who were, who were, who were the gatekeepers, if you will, of, of God's holy place. No longer was that the case. And so let's see how this thing plays out. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them publicly into prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple. Notice where he tells them to go. Go and stand in the temple. You're going to see that word show up multiple times throughout this passage. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. It goes on. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. I think that's actually kind of funny, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. So, so some observations, right? Just verses 17 through 21, a couple observations, then we'll keep going. The religious leader's anger led to them arresting the apostles. That was their solution. They were upset, and so they arrested them. They did it publicly, probably in order to make a point, but they were freed through divine intervention, right? An angel shows up. An angel shows up and just lets them walk freely and gives them some commands, go and preach and teach in the temple. And so one thing I think is safe to say, being that an angel showed up, the angel of the Lord showed up to open the gates of the prison and let them out, is that God is on their side. Right? If an angel shows up and tells you to do something, it probably means that God's okay with it. Right? It probably means God's okay with it. And that's what we see taking place here. God is sanctioning what they're doing. God is affirming what they're doing. He's authenticating the message of the resurrection by showing up, opening the gate, and letting them go out and continue doing the very thing they were already doing. And what's significant about this is that we see, see, right as I said before, a clear changing of the guard right before our eyes. Those entrusted with leading God's people, teaching them the law of God, and caring for their souls are being replaced. They're being replaced. And the apostles are now commissioned to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And this life is another way of saying, like, show them how to follow Jesus. Show them how to live their lives in obedience to the king. Show them how to be loyal subjects to King Jesus. Teach them this, right? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you is basically what's happening right here. So in other words, if you want to know how to follow Jesus and be faithful to Yahweh, then the religious leaders are not where you ought to go. That's not where you ought to go. But rather, listen to the apostles And that's why we read in the book of Acts, it says that they were devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. Because it's what they were teaching, which was the resurrection of Jesus and how to be obedient to King Jesus, that was basically laying the foundation for what was referred to as the way and which will later be referred to as Christianity. They were teaching us and the people before them how to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And so then there's some comical relief thrown in, in into the mix, right? The high priest and the rents of the council probably went to bed that night thinking, all right, we'll deal with that in the morning. And then all of a sudden they wake up and they're gone. They're just not there. It's like, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, um, I know you wanted me to go get the apostles, those guys that you wanted me to arrest and they're in jail. Uh, they're not there anymore. Like, I don't. I don't know where they went. And so let's see what happens. Now when the high priest came, verse 21, and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. They were greatly perplexed. They were like, what in the world is going on? What do you mean they're not there? The door's locked, there's guards outside, but they're just gone? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how it works. That's not how how matter works. Things don't just happen, like, out of nowhere. Something's up. And the question they asked, wondering what this would come to, because now they're getting nervous. And now they're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? What do you mean they're not there? What does this mean for the future? And so the text goes on. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Not by force. So notice there's a fear brewing in the the lives of the religious leaders. They wanted the apostles to cease from teaching. Now they weren't so public about it. Remember a few verses earlier, they put them in prison publicly or in a public prison. Now they're like, okay, all right. The captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. See, there's an inversion of power taking place right before our eyes. Beverly Gaventa, New Testament scholar, says it like this. Instead of the apostles being afraid of the powerful... The powerful are afraid of the apostles, right? Instead of the the apostles being afraid of the powerful, the powerful are afraid of the apostles. See, this entire first section shows us two things. One, that God is on the side of this movement. And that two, this movement is eclipsing and in a sense replacing the old way, which is precisely why the religious leaders are so angry. That's why they're mad. The resurrection means they're out of a job. A Messiah showing up means they're out of a job. The temple no longer being the place where worship takes place means they're out of a job. And they no longer have the power that they once possessed. And so now that cleansing of the temple that we just read about in in, in John's gospel is now starting to kind of unfold throughout human history, right? The temple is being cleansed in a sense that we have become the temple, those of us who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so the text continues, verses 27 and following. Let me read. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. It's important. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so the scene shifts. The apostles are once again standing before the council. And, and, and remember this place, the council. This should have been a place of fear. This should have been a place that would have caused the apostles to, to tremble. Why? Because when Jesus stood before that same council back in Luke 22, he was ultimately killed. Right, his standing before the council led to his death. And, and I think it's funny because the religious leaders are concerned that the apostles' teaching will bring this man's blood upon them. Of course this man's blood upon is upon you. You killed him. You delivered him over to Pilate. And now you're worried that, like, oh, well, I, I didn't kill him. It's like, no, 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 that's called conspiracy to murder. Right? Like, that's what took place there. I think that's called conspiracy to murder, right? Thank you. Right? <laughs> But what happens is that this place of fear before the council has become a place of godly confidence. This place of fear has become a place of godly confidence. Knowing that these leaders had their best friend and Lord killed, they respond, yeah, no, 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 we got to obey God, not you guys. We got to obey God. Which then leads to the foundation of their confidence. Let's take a look here. Right? He says, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and now you want to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answer, We must obey God rather than men. Why? Well, let me tell you why. The God of our fathers, the God of our fathers raised this Jesus whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. We saw it with our own eyes. And so is the holy spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So where does this confidence come from? Where does this place of how does this place of fear get turned into a place of godly confidence? Well, one is the resurrection of Jesus. Period. The resurrection of Jesus. See, back then, in Luke 22, they feared death. Now that death has been defeated, they no longer fear it anymore. And so the place of fear becomes a place of confidence because the God of our fathers raised Jesus. And not only the resurrection, but the reorienting of power and authority in trying to shame and humiliate Jesus by hanging him on a tree, which we see as a curse back in Deuteronomy 20, 21. What, what God did was provide an opportunity for, not that's not God. What the religious leaders did was provided an opportunity For God to exalt this man who was shamed by being hung on a tree as leader and savior. That word could also mean um, ruler or forerunner or prince. In other words, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And as leader or prince and savior, he now offers repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And they don't simply know this because they heard about it, but rather they were witnesses to these things along with the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So, so what's the point? No longer are God's people afraid because they know that death no longer has the same power it once did. Resurrection means we no longer need to fear death and an enemy who does not fear death, is the most dangerous of all because there is nothing you can do to them for they have nothing to lose. See, the apostles had nothing to lose because they knew, they had confidence that if they do anything to them, if they kill them, if they beat them, whatever they do, they are going to be raised up to new life. That was the facts that they were dealing with. That's where their confidence is drawn from. Redeemer fellowship, that's where our confidence is drawn from. Because we too have nothing to lose because Jesus is alive and well and seated at the right hand of the Father. And those of us who pick up our crosses and follow him, we too will be raised up on the last day. And we will be with him for all of eternity. Those are the facts that they're dealing with. That's what gives them confidence. That's what gives them boldness. That's what enables them to say in the face of those who killed their Lord, yeah, we don't have to listen to you. We have to listen to God. That's what gives them boldness. So so a couple of things, because I want to talk about the resurrection a little bit. And I know we're a few weeks away from Easter, but but every Sunday is an opportunity to talk about the resurrection because it is the central tenet of our faith. Paul the Apostle says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Basically, this is a waste of time, right, if Jesus was not raised from the dead. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That means he's still in the ground. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That means, like I said, this is a waste of time and our sins are not forgiven. Then those all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what Paul says about the resurrection of his Lord. If he's not alive and well, then what are we doing? There are a lot more things all of us could be doing on a Sunday morning if Jesus didn't rise up from the dead. Tim Keller says it like this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but rather, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's the point. That's the point. The resurrection is everything. We can have questions about, about other sorts of doctrines, and, and like I said a couple weeks ago, there's open-handed and closed-handed issues. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you're not a Christian. That's that's what we're dealing with here. It is the most important doctrine that we believe as followers of Jesus, that he suffered, died, and was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. That's it. That's the crux of the Christian faith. Uh, My my old pastor, he used some incredible logic to to articulate this. I'm going to read it. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, so just follow me here. He says this, After Christ's crucifixion, His disciples respond reasonably by hiding out. Just weeks afterwards, they burst open the doors and are standing among the very authorities they feared. Only two explanations exist for this striking change. One option is that the disciples truly had experienced something life-changing and otherworldly, something so profound that they no longer feared death and even welcomed death, if it meant effectively living out and communicating the reality of what they experienced. The only other option available to us is if they hadn't experienced such a thing, but had instead made it up entirely. He goes on, martyrs of other faiths are equally convinced of the tenets of their religion and believe that their sacrifice will not be in vain because of certain promises in their sacred texts. Martyrdom doesn't necessarily prove anything about the objective genuineness of that which one dies for. For that to be the case, we need an utterly different situation. The apostles' situation is utterly different. The apostles went to their deaths with complete certainty. Either they knew for certain that they'd seen the risen Jesus, because remember, they were eyewitnesses. Either they knew for certain that they'd seen the risen Jesus, or they knew for certain that they hadn't. If Christ's resurrection is a lie, it was a lie they knowingly conspire to proliferate. Given this unique circumstance in which the apostles found themselves, the reality is either the apostles were burned, hung, or starved to death for a lie they themselves had created, or they died for a truth they themselves, and maybe only they themselves, had 100% confidence was true. I mean, think about that. They either saw it with their own eyes or they went to death and suffered martyrdom for a lie they helped create. That gives me confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. That gives me enormous amounts of confidence. Because most rational, rational people would not die for a lie they made up. Most people wouldn't do that. And so the, the passage goes on. And this third point, an unlikely ally, verses 33 through 42, it says this. When they heard this, the religious leaders, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. I think that's so interesting. Even as I, as I look at that first verse in this section, it's like literally... Peter just preached the gospel. Peter just said, you can have forgiveness of sins if you put your faith in the crucified and risen Savior. And right, gospel preaching does really elicit only a few responses, right? Either someone is indifferent to it, they're like, oh, whatever, that's not for me. Or they're really angry about it, or they accept it. Those are really the only three responses, right? Indifference, love, or anger. They chose anger. And as a result, they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. Really interesting storytelling point that Luke, remember, is a remarkable storyteller, that he uses the word anistemi again. To describe Gamaliel's actions and how, again, right? Resurrection kind of peers its head again. Gamaliel rises, and it's this little kind of signpost of a resurrection that, that saves them from death. Again, this is not the resurrection, but it's it's a little wordplay that Luke is using to kind of point out like, yeah, the resurrection matters. And I'm gonna use that word all over the text. It's all over the text. And this serves as a signpost for how the resurrection saves us from certain death. And so the text goes on. And he said to the men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after me. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. A couple of observations. We see that Thutis and Judas the Galilean also rise up. Same word. But they end up dying, right? Why? Because those are false messiahs. They're not the real deal. And Gamaliel cites that. He notices they're not the real deal because if something is of man, it will not stand the test of time. But if it's of God, then guess what? They're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. And if we claim to be the religious leaders we are claiming to be, then we're now opposing God. Now we become enemies of God if we oppose this movement. So Gamaliel's kind of like, like I don't know if I want to jump in on this. Like, I get why you're mad. I might even be a little you know, upset about it too, but, but let's see how this thing plays out. Let's see where this goes. And then what happens? In verse 39, it says they took his advice. In verse 40 says, when they had called the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I love how they kind of wanted to get a couple last-minute shots in before they let him go. It's like, yeah, Gamaliel, we're going to listen to you, but let's let them know we're serious. All right? So they, they kind of take his advice, but they don't. It's a weird situation. I never really understood that. It's like, it's like, all right, guy, like, relax. Like, If you're going to listen to the wisdom of Gamaliel, then listen to the wisdom of Gamaliel. But no, no, they wanted to beat him up a little bit. Okay, but... But here's what happens in verse 41. Even after getting beat up, imprisoned, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as king. I love this verse here. They were excited because their shame and their dishonor was reoriented and turned into glory right? That's the nature of the Christian life. We've talked about this, right? We are, we are forgiven by the cross, but we are also formed by the cross. And to be formed by the cross means that we do suffer dishonor and shame in this life. But what does God do with dishonor and shame when, when we allow it to, to come upon us for the sake of his name? He reorients it and turns it into glory. He reorients it and turns it into glory in the same way that Jesus being hung on a tree which was which was meant to be a curse that's what Deuteronomy 21 talks about that those who hang on a tree are accursed he takes that curse that shame and he reorients it and he's doing the same thing in the lives of the apostles and he's doing the same thing in our lives those of us who desire to submit ourselves to king Jesus our shame will be turned into glory that's the promise of the resurrection That's the promise of the resurrection. Jesus is not dead anymore. And if Jesus is not dead anymore, then we too will live with him for all eternity, provided we suffer with him, provided we kneel down and bend our knee to him as king, we will be raised up with him on the last day. That's the promise of the scriptures. That's the promise of Christ for those of us who believe. And that is a glorious thing. And there is much shame for those of us who want to follow Jesus and be faithful. There's going to be shame. There's going to be dishonor. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. You might be ostracized for your faith. That's the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are called to step into the mess and brokenness of others, which means we might be associated with the messy and the broken. But God takes that He smiles at that. He reorients it and makes it into glory. That's a beautiful thing. And that's why they had confidence. That's why they were so bold. See, when Jesus died and when he was risen and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Paul tells us that he became, in 1 Corinthians 15, I believe, verse 45, that he became life-giving spirit. He became life-giving spirit. And, and, And as a result, he poured out on his people the benefits of salvation. That we too now are adopted into the family of God. We too now are justified, meaning our sins have been forgiven and atoned for, and we are in right standing with God. We too are being sanctified, meaning we are made holy day by day. God is, is, is fashioning us and forming us and conforming us to the image of his son. And one day we will be glorified with him. That's good news. That's good news news. That's what's happening in this passage. That's what's going on. They rejoiced because they knew the truth. They knew the truth. They, the truth. they rejoiced because in the same way God turned shame and dishonor into glory for Jesus, he was going to do it for them. Because to be in union with Christ, which is one of the central components of our salvation, to be in union with Christ means we get what Jesus has. That's what it means. What a beautiful thing. That all of that has been lavished upon Jesus is now being lavished upon us. And that's what, like, it's it's the resurrection every time we sing about it. Every time it comes up in conversation. That's what wells up in me. All sorts of joy and excitement. That's the thing. That's the thing. We can wrestle about other things like, like are, are the sign gifts still here? When's, when's the millennium? Um, what about the age of the earth? We can wrestle with all of these things. But we can never wrestle with the fact that Jesus rose up from the dead. That's, that's, that's it. And the fact that he rose up from the dead means that we will too. And that means we have nothing to fear. And we have to remind ourselves of that in a year that has just poured out so much fear upon everyone, we have to remind ourselves and one another, yeah, but Jesus is alive, and you belong to him. Jesus is alive, and you belong to him. That's the truth, and that's our hope. That's our hope. And if the resurrection doesn't get you excited if the resurrection doesn't bring a tear to your eye, if the resurrection doesn't well up in you all sorts of joy, wonder, and awe, then, then you got to look into that. you got to examine that. You have to, you have to really go back and figure that out because that is everything. It's everything. This passage reveals to us, even some 2,000 years later, that our confidence... And our hope is found in the person and work of Jesus who defeated death and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all of creation. I used to say to my kids that when Jesus rose up from the dead, he crushed death to pieces. He crushed it to pieces. It is no longer that same enemy it once was. It is no longer that same enemy it once was. And while there are antichrists that will pop up all over the world and throughout all of human history vying for our worship and adoration, we are called to worship King Jesus by loving both God and neighbor and proclaiming the good news through both word and deed so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. And so as we come to the table this morning, As we come to the table this morning, let us come in boldness. Let us come with confidence that by grace through faith in the resurrected King, our sins have been forgiven. And now we are included in this new creation project to love God to love neighbor, and to enter into the suffering of those within our midst and those looking in on our community, that they might see Jesus. That They might see Jesus. Along the way, we will experience pushback. But our confidence is not drawn from by how many people agree with us, but by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and he now resides with us through the person and work of his Holy Spirit. That is the Christian hope. That Jesus is alive and we will be raised up with him on the last day. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you are alive and well. Lord, that you have called us to be partakers of this life with you, Lord God. Thank you so much that we belong to you, Lord. Thank you so much that we have been adopted into the family of God, Father. Father, I pray that we would would cultivate that confidence and that boldness, Lord God, that we would receive the grace that you have so graciously given to us, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us to follow you, to love you, to honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.